can also find it printed in your bulletin. If you recall from last week, Saul's foolishness was contrasted with his son Jonathan's trust in God. And Saul's disobedience in offering up a sacrifice before Samuel came led to God telling Saul that there would be no dynasty coming from the line of Saul. Chapter 14 end, ended with a short summary of Saul's kingship, almost like his kingship had already ended. And so we come to our chapter for this morning, 1 Samuel 15. We'll work through this story in sections, but before we do that, I'd like to introduce a main point. I'm kind of thinking of this as a short story within the story, so this main point is maybe more like a title, a title to this story. And that's simply this. God rejects the king who rejects him. God rejects the king who rejects him. That is what will happen in this story. We'll walk through how and why this happens as we go through this story. So 1 Samuel 15 is one story in the larger story of 1 Samuel. We've just begun visiting. We started in the book of 1 Samuel several months ago. I'm trying to think. Maybe maybe. Anyways. We'll break down this story into five sections. First, the command. That's in verses 1 to 3. Second, the conquest. That's in verses 4 to 9. Third, the confrontation begins. Verses 10 to 16. Fourth, the confrontation verdict. Verses 17 to 23. And fifth, the consequences. We're taking notes and we didn't get all that down, we'll come back to those as we go through. Well, let's begin with the first section of the story. The first, command. Command. This acts as the setting for the story. The setting for any story helps us to understand what comes after. So please look with me at 1 Samuel 15, verses 1 to 3. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in closing them in the way up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek, and devote to destruction all that he has. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Here, Samuel tells Saul the command. First, Samuel states that it is the Lord that had Samuel anoint Saul as king over Israel. Samuel is reminding Saul. His position was given by the Lord. So Saul obviously should listen to the words of the Lord. The Lord has not forgotten what Amalek did to Israel back in Exodus after they came out of Egypt. 
Deuteronomy 25 also gives further details, speaking of the way that the Amalekites attacked Israel and were faint and were cutting off those who were lagging behind. So it sounds like the Amalekites were acting like wolves, picking off the sheep that were at the back of the pack, or doing the rule of warfare against a group of people that's just wandering around in the desert. And so in light of what Amalek did, and in light of the sins of Amalek, God is using Israel to punish Amalek. In verse 3, we read that Saul is commanded to devote to destruction everything that they have. Man and woman, child and infant, also sheep and Amalek's doom had been spoken of generations and generations ago. And now the time had come for judgment. From the time the Israelites came out of Egypt until the time of Saul, Amalek had not repented. The Amalekites are referred to as sinners in verse 18. They and their king are deserving of punishment. Israel will simply be God's instrument of judgment. Some of you may have a footnote in your Bible that in understanding this word devote to destruction, devote is used in the sense of setting apart. The destruction of the Amalekites is in and of itself meant to be an offering to the Lord. That is not to say that God is happy to punish a group of people. But God had been patient with Amalek for generations, and the time had come for them to be judged. It's not the same as how we think of war today, in which it is unlikely we know if God is on either side or if God even approves of the war at all. These wars in the time of the Old Testament were God's divine acts of judgment against those who followed other gods, while at the same time being a way to fulfill his promises to his people. That brings us to the second section of our short story, the conquest. Conquest. Here we read of what Saul did in response to this command. Please look with me in your Bibles from verse 4 to verse 9. So we read, So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the padded calves, and of the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. Despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. In this section, at least as far as numbers go, so Saul and the Israelites have more battle-ready men than the previous chapters against the Philistines. And Saul numbered the people with him after he went against God's word and made the sacrifice in chapter 13. He had only 600 men with him. Now he has 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men in Judah. But as we remember Jonathan saying in chapter 14, 
nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. In verse 6, Saul warns the Kenites of the destruction that would fall upon the Amalekites, so that the Kenites could be saved from this punishment. Moses' father-in-law is referred to as a Kenite. He was also referred to as a Midianite. So one thought would be that, that perhaps the Kenites were one group within the larger group of people called the Midianites. So one example of the Kenites being kind to Israel is through Moses' father-in-law, showing kindness to Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness. So God shows mercy to the Kenites by warning them, and then verses 7 and 9 describes what happens next. Saul defeats the Amalekites. Look again at these verses. Is Saul obedient to God's command? Verse 9 speaks of how Saul and the people spared Agag the king, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs. So it seems like what Saul considered good, he and the people did not destroy. Saul considered worthless, they destroyed. So this flies in the face of God's command to devote everything to destruction. In a sense, Saul wants to just give God leftovers when everything is meant to be devoted to God. But Saul and the people want the best for themselves. I want to think back to Hophni and Phineas, the priests, wanting the best fatty cuts of meat before the sacrifice. They were not truly interested in making sacrifices to God. They only wanted to serve themselves. Here, Saul and the people are only willing to devote to God what they deem as worthless. And I wonder how often we're tempted in the same way. How often are we tempted to, to give God the leftovers? God asks for our whole lives. God asks us to be living sacrifices to Him. But there may be times when we want to worship God on our own terms. How much of a temptation is it for us to, to section off our lives and say, God, God, you can have this, and, and you can have this, and this, because I, I don't really care about those things anymore. I don't really want those things anyway. But that's not how we're to live our lives. Our lives are to be wholly devoted to God. God must reign as King over our lives. So, brothers and sisters, let's look into our, our own hearts. What areas of our life might, might we be saying to God, No, God, this is this is mine. And what this may look like from day to day may be a challenge. We may have blind spots when we look at our own lives, which is part of why we need the church, which is part of why we need one another to help us see when we have blind spots, when we have idols in our own lives, that we're not willing to give up God. So brothers and sisters, let's spur one another on to worship God, devote everything to Him. That brings us to our third section. Conversation begins. Actually, it would be better described as a confrontation. Confrontation begins. 
begins. Please open to verses 10 16. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. So the word of the Lord came to Samuel. As God's prophet, God directly speaks to Samuel. And God speaks of regretting making Saul king. Because Saul has turned his back on God. Samuel has an emotional response. He is angry. And he cries to the Lord all night. It doesn't say exactly why Samuel gets so emotional. But when we think on the background of, of how Saul became king, God had told Samuel to anoint Saul. Samuel didn't really want to anoint Saul. God told him to listen to the people, and, and Samuel submitted to the people and anointed Saul as king. On a, on a lesser scale, one can imagine that if you were the owner of a small business, you wanted to retire, you chose someone to take your place at the head of the business. If that person failed miserably, you would feel emotionally bad for your former employees, for your company, former company. But for Samuel, this is on a much bigger scale. This is the leadership, he's leading the entire, he was leading the entire nation of Israel. God had given the Israelites a godly leader in Samuel. He had handed over the reins to Saul, and Saul was already turning his back on God. So Samuel was crying out to God for the whole night. I imagine that if we could hear those prayers, we could learn much. Thinking about what it what it sounds like to cry out to God. Perhaps Samuel was also confused. I would seem like that God said one thing before, but now saying this about Saul. We'll get back to that. So Samuel rose early to meet Saul, and verse 12 includes a detail that we should not overlook. It says that Saul came to Carmel. Behold, he set up a monument for himself. Some of you may have visited Washington, D.C., and I imagine if they, that if you visited Washington, D.C., you would have taken a trip to the Lincoln Memorial. For those of you who haven't visited Washington, D.C., you may have still seen a movie with the Lincoln Memorial in it. So do you know which U.S. president commissioned the Lincoln Memorial? 
Well, it wasn't Lincoln. <laughs> it was President William Howard Taft. We don't really talk about that much. And so even today, most of us would think it would be quite a proud thing to do for the leader of a country to set up a giant monument of himself. That's what Saul did. This is so different than what Samuel did back in 1 Samuel 7. After the Lord defeated the Philistines when Samuel was judging Israel, Samuel set up a memorial stone and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Till now, the Lord has helped us. So Samuel set up a memorial stone, not to himself, but to the Lord who had won the battle. So it seems like when Saul sets up a monument for himself, He's taking credit for defeating the Amalekites, rather than giving all the credit to God. Thinking again to ourselves, how might we be tempted to do this kind of thing ourselves? While we may not be setting up monuments to ourselves on our yontides, how concerned are we with people, with how people think of us? Are we more interested in people praising us than in people praising God? Brothers and sisters, may God work to change our proud hearts. In verse 13, Samuel meets Saul, and Saul says, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Perhaps Saul is faking it, or perhaps he has really convinced himself that he obeyed God's commands. There's no way for Samuel to smile and nod. Instead, Samuel replies with what sounds like, like holy sarcasm. What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Those animals are supposed to be sacrificed. They're not supposed to be mooing and bawling in the background. We heard Saul making excuses in last week's sermon, and he does it again here. It was the people. The people did it. The people spread the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice the Lord your God. It seems that Saul's blame shifting in every direction. First, he says the people did it. And then Saul says that it's in order to, to sacrifice to your God, Samuel. For some reason, he doesn't say our God. And perhaps Saul would have kept on blame shifting and making excuses, but Samuel orders Saul to stop. Samuel must tell Saul what God had said to Samuel. Probably with conflicted and complex emotions, Samuel the prophet must continue to faithfully relay God's word to Saul. We'll find out as we move to the fourth section. The confrontation's verdict. The confrontation's verdict. Here we look at verses 17 to 23. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, 
and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil of sheep and oxen, and the best of the things devoted to destruction and sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, As the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Verse 17 reminds us of when Samuel first anointed Saul, king of Israel. At that time, Saul had spoken in a lowly way about himself. He spoke of himself being from the least of the tribes of Israel and the humblest of all the lands of Benjamin. The Lord still anointed Saul king. And the Lord had given Saul a mission to complete. And so Samuel asked, Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and knew it was evil? Notice the phrase pounce on the spoil. Saul continues to make it sound like the only reason that he and the people kept some of the animals was to sacrifice them. But it seems much more likely that Saul and the people wanted to, to eat these animals and somewhat conveniently use the excuse of planning a sacrifice. So Saul answers Samuel's question and he again tries to make a case that he's innocent. He says he has obeyed the Lord, he has gone in this and it was the people. It was their fault. And notice again that Saul speaks to the Lord and the Lord, your God. It's almost like Saul was trying to say to Samuel, What's the big deal? I mostly followed God's commands, but I mostly followed God's commands, but in the case of Agag, in the case of the animals that, that looked like they would make great stakes, I just had to give the people what they wanted. People wanted lamb chops and steaks, so let them eat lamb chops and steaks, Samuel. And we can make an offering too. But Samuel is not the least bit convinced, not the least bit amused by Saul. The next two verses are very helpful in understanding Saul's sin and in understanding this chapter as a whole. Samuel says, as the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen to the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. In other words, Satan last Saul, what would make God more happy? smell the burnt offering that you made or for you to actually obey what God has said. Obedience is better than sacrifice. 
may be helpful at this point to remember what was the whole point of the sacrificial system. The Israelites did not offer burnt offerings to God because he was hungry. They offered burnt offerings and sacrifices primarily as a way to temporarily atone for their sins. In other words, if the Israelites never sinned, there would be no need for blood sacrifice. And so it makes sense that God takes greater delights in obedience than in the sacrifice itself. And then Samuel connects some dots for Saul and for us. He connects what we might think of as lesser sin to more serious sin. And in doing so, Samuel is helping us understand the heart of the person. Rebellion is compared to the sin of divination. And note that Samuel is saying that Saul did rebel against God by committing this sin. And the sad thing is that, spoiler alert, but by the end of Saul's life, he will also take part in the sin of divination, trying to call up the dead in order to speak here to the dead. And then Samuel compares presumption to iniquity and idolatry. So one can ask, how is it that the sin of presumption is like idolatry? Saul presumed on God. Saul had this proud assumption that he could do what he thought was best and go directly against God's command. In Saul's presumption, he replaces God with the idol of self. And so presumption is not such a far stretch from idolatry. When, when God has spoken, we don't get to presume that things can be otherwise. So what are ways that you may be tempted to presume on God? What are ways that you may be tempted to reject what God has said because you think you're, you're smarter than God? Okay, probably none of us would admit to saying that we're smarter than God, but that's often how we act when we presume on God. So especially post-COVID, one example of Presuming on God might be not gathering with God's people and just settling for videos of sermons or listening to sermons at home. But at the end of the book of Hebrews, God has commanded us to not neglect meeting together. This is not something that we get to on our own decide what I think is best. Another example of presuming on God would be a, a Christian deciding to marry a non-Christian. God has designed it for Christians to marry with other Christians, to live out the metaphor of Christ and the church together. There are many excuses that a, a Christian who wants to marry a non-Christian will want to make. And this also is presumption. Could go on and on further examples we can think of examples in our own lives are there ways that you personally presume on God 
to pray that God reveal our presumptions and humble us before him. Samuel finishes this confrontation by saying God's burden against Saul. He says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you for being king. Because Saul rejected God's word, God chose to reject Saul as king. God's commands to Saul were very clear. He said why everything should be devoted to destruction. But Saul did not keep God's commands. Saul rejected God's commands. And because Saul rejected God's commands, it is right for God to reject Saul as king. Now Saul actually deserves much worse. In the book of Joshua, when Achan stole some of the things that were devoted to destruction, God destroyed Achan and his family and the devoted things that he stole altogether. God gave Achan the death And only after that was Israel able to have victory over their enemies. So instead of being the kind of leader that Joshua was at that time, Saul was doing what Achan did, stealing the things that God had devoted to destruction. Saul's rejection for being king also does not mean that the crown immediately is taken off of Saul's head, but eventually it will be. It's a done deal. That brings us to our fifth and final section, the consequences. The consequences. Please look with me from verse 24 until the end of chapter 15. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I fear the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you for being king of Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. And Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made woman childless, so shall your motherless mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord with Yodah. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah. Saul and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. 
Saul does not want his conversation with Samuel to end this way. Samuel had just told Saul that God had rejected him as king. Saul knows he should admit his sin. He says he has sinned. Then he gives a reason for the sin, saying that he feared the people and obeyed the people. This probably is a mostly true explanation. It does seem that Saul cares very, very much what the people think. He is prone to fear. But it seems that Saul may fear the people more than he fears God. This particular sin can loom large in our own lives as well. It would be easy for us to fear people more than we fear God. When we do this, we may end up ignoring God's commands and becoming more of a, a people pleaser rather than actually caring what is best for the people around us. If you think that, that fear of man may be a temptation for you, one helpful book on the book table. It should be on the book table, but I, I borrowed it and still need to return it back. It's called When People Are Big and God Is Small by Ed Welch. If we share in Saul's sin of beginning to care more about what people think than about what God has said, reading and, and perhaps discussing this book with another member of the church, we have helped. So Saul asks Samuel to go with, to go with him. Samuel replies, he will not go with Saul. Samuel tries to leave. Uncle Fisher Saul grabbing onto Samuel's robe as he tries to leave. Perhaps Saul is even kneeling down or falling down as he grabs onto Samuel's robe. There's some desperation in this action. Samuel looks had his torn robe, and he sees this as a metaphor, saying, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Saul was head and shoulders above the rest of the people of Israel as far as height goes. But the Lord had a plan to give the kingship to someone who was better than Saul. In regards to how the Lord sees a person's heart, we introduce to who this person is in the next chapter, verse 16. There are a couple questions we might have as we look at this text. One question to ask is, was Saul truly sorry for his sins? Did Saul repent? In verses 24 and 30, Saul begins these sentences though well. He admits his sin. But notice, especially in verse 30, how, how quickly Saul takes the focus off of his admission of sin. And he asks Samuel to honor him before the elders of the people, before Israel, to return to him. So it seems that Saul is still more concerned with his own reputation than with his sin. If Samuel does not go with Saul, the Israelites will begin asking questions. Rumors might spread that Saul did something wrong, and Saul wants to keep up appearances. Saul's main goal here is not the true worship of God. 
Steve, then Saul still thinks of the Lord as, as Samuel's father. If you're here today, you're visiting, and you're, you're not a Christian, you might already know that you're a sinner. You may already know that you have done wrong. I know many non-Christians who are willing to admit they've done wrong. Friends, this is not enough. Do you see the seriousness of your sin? Saul admits his sin, but then, then he simply seems to brush it off. Friends, let's switch to the topic. It's like the person who pleads guilty in a court of law. Yes, Your Honor, I, I plead guilty. Now that I've pleaded guilty, can you, can you let me scot free? Can you at least shorten my sentence? There's apparent lack of understanding the seriousness of the crime. But on the contrast, if God helps you to see the seriousness of your sin, that's a good place for you to start. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, our prayer for you is not only that you see your sin, but that you turn away from your sin and you turn to follow Jesus. Because you cannot fight your sin on your own. You need someone to save you out of your sin. And the only one who can save you in this way is Jesus. I will be very happy to talk with you more about this after the sermon and so with, after the service and so with other members of WSBC. So did Saul repent? It does not appear that he did. And as we continue to walk through the book of 1 Samuel, the spiritual state continues to worsen. True repentance will result in obedience. Saul could have realized his sins and tried again to follow what God commanded. But in verses 32 to 33, it's still Samuel who has to step up to finish what God commanded and execute. The There's another question that we may have as we look at this text, and that is, does God show regret? Verse 29 uses a unique title for God, that, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. But then the end of the chapter says, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Earlier in verse 11, God also had told Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king. This may be difficult to understand how this fits together, and we may not be able to fully comprehend. But I think we can still begin to understand Verse 29 reminds us that God is not a man. So that's a good place to start. God is not a man that he should have regret. In other words, if God is, is described as having regret, it's different from the way that humans have regret. When humans have regret, we often think, we often wish right away that we would have done something differently. If we knew the consequences were so bad, we had another chance to do it over again, we would have done it differently. 
Because humans don't know the future. But God knows the future. God already has the best plan for the future. And so we've seen that God's regret is similar to all the emotions that we may feel when we feel regret. But if God had a chance to do it over again, he would still do it the same way. Because God himself rules over history. And at the same time, God does not rule over history in a cold and distant way. God truly cares about Saul as a person. And God truly cares about the people of Israel. And so when God's anointed king sins against God, God grieves. Samuel stayed up all night angry and crying out to God. And perhaps that's just the taste of the grief that God felt over Saul's sin. One commentator put it this way. Here is a God who is neither fickle in his ways nor indifferent in his responses. Here is a God who has both firmness and feeling. Did God regret? God grieved over Saul. And when we see sin in one another's lives, let that also cause us to grieve and cause us to cry out. Saul and Samuel separated ways. And the passage says that Samuel did not see Saul again until his death. So such a sad thing. King of Israel should be one who continues to hear the word spoken by God's prophet. But Saul would no longer hear the word by his son. They have completely separated ways. And so our short story ends with this expectation of a king better than Saul, a king who would be obedient to God, a king who would listen to God's word. Now if you're familiar with the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, you know that the king better than Saul would be David. <laughs> David sang out with the attitude in Psalm 40 that Saul should have had. And so David sings in Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. This is the kind of attitude that a king of God's people should have. But David's words point ahead. David, as well, does not always live in the obedient way that he sings out in his song. But one day there would be a king who would fully and completely live in this way. 
And so we come to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 to 7. And Hebrews 10, 5 to 7 says this. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The words of King David became the words of the son of David, who is the greater king. Jesus came to do God's will and to do it perfectly. And Hebrews 5 verse 10 says, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In order to be obedient to the Father, Jesus gave up his body as a sacrifice. In obedience to the Father, Jesus gave up his very life as a sacrifice. So that all those who turn away from our sins and turn to Jesus and put our trust in him are made holy. We are made pure through the sacrifice of Jesus. Reflecting on the life of Saul may bring to mind many sins in our own lives. But Jesus has sacrificed more than enough to pay for these sins. Jesus has made a way for us to be forgiven by his perfect, obedient, Sacrifice. And let us be changed by the understanding of the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. Let that spur us on to godliness, to obedience. So praise the Father for sending Jesus to do his good will. That's what Jesus did. Jesus is that we have hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for sending Jesus. And Jesus, we praise you for your obedience to the will of the Father, <coughs> so that we also be, can be counted as holy. And Lord, in light of our new identities as holy people, as saints, Lord, will we live obedient lives to you? Lord, will we encourage and spur one another on to obedience? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.